0: Hello and welcome to Radio Silence. You're listening to us on Radio Fodder, and we are bringing science into focus. My name is Catriona, and the colour that I wear the most is blue. Yesterday, I was wearing an outfit that was completely in blue, and we're also joined with Kai. Kai, what colour do you wear most?
1: Funnily enough, I also wear blue a lot, so there you go. (laughs) Uh, And yeah, definitely guilty of entirely blue outfits as well. Carla, what about you?
2: I'm going to be so original (laughs) and say that also. Wear a lot of blue (laughs) and I'm currently wearing a blue jumper, Um, so we're all just really
0: unique on this show. (laughs) There you go. I, I like to wear a lot of rainbow stuff too, but like I can't say my whole outfit is like always rainbow. Um, but if you haven't picked up on it, our topic today is colour. So we're going to be talking about different sciencey sort of things around colour. But before we do that, we're going to talk about some cool news stories of the week. So Kai, what have you got for us?
1: So I've got some big news for anyone with a pacemaker now. That's probably none of you guys, but. For anyone that does have one, you've got to watch out because some modern technology can interfere with pacemakers and other cardiovascular implantable devices. And it has to do with magnets. So, a lot of devices these days have very strong magnets inside them. Some examples, um, these are the ones that are used in a study I'm about to talk about, were the Apple iPhone 12 Pro Max, Apple AirPods, and Microsoft Surface Pen. So, these are just some examples of new technology that has really strong magnets in them. And a lot of this has to do with wireless charging. So they put these magnets in to make wireless charging more effective. And, you know, that's great for charging your phone, but it can have some serious problems with cardiac devices. And the reason for this is because many of these devices have what's called a magnet mode. And this is where the device can be temporarily disabled by placing a strong magnet near them. Now, this sounds silly, but it has really important clinical uses. So, sometimes you might need to disable a pacemaker or something temporarily, if you want to run a test or do a scan. And you need to know, like there needs to be a way of of doing this. And it just so happens that this is done with magnets. So, You know, the doctor would hold a strong magnet near the chest and that would temporarily disable the pacemaker while they did whatever they needed to do. So, as you can see, having strong magnets in your devices and having this magnet mode in pacemakers and things could cause some serious problems. So, some researchers from Switzerland measured the strength of the magnetic field that was outside these devices and how far away it you know how far away from the device could you be before, while the magnetic field was still strong enough to deactivate a pacemaker and what they found was many of the devices i mentioned before can produce sufficient magnetic fields at some distance away from them so for example one of the worst ones was the like the like case for airpods has a has a strong magnet in it and placing this in your chest pocket could actually provide a strong enough feel to disable a pacemaker that's inside your body yeah. so this is a pretty big deal mm. now the risk of magnets and pacemakers has been known for a while but it wasn't such a problem when these strong magnets weren't as common as they're now starting to become so the recommendation is to keep strong magnets or any of these devices that might contain them away from your chest at least a distance of about six inches now that's like a a safe distance. Um, You could get a bit closer and be still be fine, but that's the recommended safe distance. So anyone out there, make sure you listen to your doctors when they say keep magnets away from your pacemaker. And yeah, it's something that we should be aware of. Carla, what news have you got?
2: Thanks Kai. So I'm not sure if either of you have seen the recent trend online that's divided the world. Um, or at least tested um, some friendships, and that is the argument about whether there are more wheels or doors in the world.
1: Oh, I've heard heard about this one uh, hasn't ruined any friendships yet. Though. I've
2: not heard of this. No. <laughs> Am I living under a rock okay well the <laughs> I argument-
1: only heard it from my younger sister, so what does that say?
2: yeah. <laughs> It's just an argument about whether there are more wheels or doors on earth. Um, And honestly, I like every time I hear a counter argument, I'm swayed to that side of the fence. So I haven't (laughs) fully decided for myself which team I'm on. Um, But I do have some bad news for those on team wheels and great Uh news for our environment. So globally, approximately 1.5 billion vehicle tires are discarded every year and actually less than 1% of those are recycled. So here in Australia alone, we end up with about 51 million tires in landfills, stockpiles, or even just like dumped in mining sites. So not only are they non-biodegradable, they also pollute surfaces, lead to toxic groundwater, and even pose a fire risk. So what researchers from the University of South Australia, along with RMIT University have done, is turn tires into concrete, which can then be used in residential construction. So these researchers looked at how crumb rubber, so tires that have been shredded into crumbs, can be used in (laughs) concrete mixes to provide a really strong and durable material for use in construction. So they replaced about 20% of typical concrete volume with crumb rubber. And then they poured two residential slabs of concrete One was your regular everyday concrete and the other was the crumb rubber concrete and they monitored them both for over two years. And what they actually found was that the crumb rubber concrete was even better than traditional concrete in some ways. So it was better for impact resistance, toughness. Um, It was more insulating and overall just more lightweight. And obviously we don't want to make jobs harder for concreters. So they also tested how the crumb rubber concrete responded to regular concrete processing and preparation um, that is normally required for construction. And what they found was that the crumb rubber mix actually required less physical effort to deal with it. Um, There were no issues with like delivery, mixing, etc. And they found that it was easier to wash their equipment afterwards as well. Yeah, so it's just a safe and more environmentally friendly alternative, and it means we're not going to be wasting and accumulating all these unused tyres. So not only does it offer a solution for the recycling issue that we're facing, but also it's like a really new and exciting material for the construction industry. And hopefully if we can upscale it and use this rubber concrete, then over time we won't even need to argue if there are more wheels (laughs) or doors, because there will be less wheels.
0: <laughs> um,
1: then we've got to yeah. find a way to recycle doors.
0: <laughs> and fun we'll fun just... fact. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> tri- tri- no, trivia question. Do you know the um, greatest or largest tire manufacturer in the world?
1: I do. Carla does. Do <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> it's good for trivia. It is Lego. Is it? So the, the real test is can Lego tyres go into this process? <laughs> I mean, I don't know what they're, <laughs> they're made they already from. from. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, What have you
2: got for us this week, Catriona?
0: (laughs) Well, I'm going to be talking about light pollution. I seem to always talk about some sort of pollution or another, but (laughs) Mm -hmm. today it's light pollution. So for billions of years, all life on Earth has relied on, you know, the predictable rhythm of day and night, and plants and animals depend on that sort of daily cycle of of light and dark rhythm to essentially govern all of our life-sustaining behaviors like reproduction, nourishment, sleep, (laughs) and... Mm -hmm. Importantly, protection from predators, maybe not so important for us, but it is important for a lot of animals. And humans have radically disrupted this cycle by lighting up the night. And while it's great for us to be able to see in the dark, we have to consider the consequences of light pollution. Um, Because essentially, because of uh, clouds reflecting the light, if you're near a city, cloudy skies are now hundreds or even thousands of times brighter than they were 200 years ago.
1: Wow. because
0: the clouds are reflecting all of the lights that we have on in our houses and our streets. So I want to talk about nocturnal animals because, you know, obviously they sleep during the day and they're active at night. And light pollution is really radically altering their nighttime environment, um, essentially turning night into day. And according to a research scientist, Christopher Kiber, or Kiber <laughs> at the German Research Centre for Geoscience in Potsdam, um, for nocturnal animals, the introduction of artificial light probably represents the most drastic change that human beings have made to their environment, which is just crazy. If you think about all the things that we, like, yeah. you know, physically do, land clearing, whatever, the worst thing we've done for them is use light. It's just wow. insane. <laughs> mm. um, so, predators use light to hunt. So, you know, they're actually probably pretty grateful. But um, prey species... Uh, use the darkness as a cover and we're only really beginning to understand what a drastic effect this has on nocturnal ecology and a study from the university of plymouth showed that some coastal species that rely on darkness to to forage and feed are losing the gift of camouflage thanks to our modern lighting so the team looked at the color of a species of snails, sea snails that are commonly found on the coastline. And they compared how the species appeared to different coastal predators when they were lit up by different forms of lighting. So they used the 20th century kind of old um, low-pressure sodium lighting. And then they used some modern lighting, like um, we now have what's called high-pressure sodium lights and um, we've got LEDs and we've got metal halides. And then they also tested the natural light provided by the sun and the moon. Um, And our new energy-efficient broad-spectrum lighting seemed to be making things worse. So the snails (laughs) remain camouflaged when illuminated by that sort of older-style lighting. But when um, they tested what the modern broad-spectrum lighting was doing, like our LEDs and things like that, they were much more clearly visible to predators. So, you know, they're at long-term risk as a result. Um, And some predictions say that LED bulbs are going to account for 85% of our global street lighting in around five years. So that sort Mm. of highlights, you know, such an advance because it's great. They save energy, but that has repercussions for humans and animals alike. So that's just something that's important to remember. Um, Minimize your light pollution if you can.
1: (laughs) Yeah, definitely. Uh, reminds me of the, the issue with the moths in mm. Canberra, um, yeah. where they had to wanted to turn off the lights so that the moths didn't all get attracted to the lights and then the pygmy possum starved.
0: Mm. Yeah, yeah. Um, Zeus Victoria has a campaign, Lights Off for the Moths. Yeah. Yeah. Allowing moths to migrate so that the pygmy possums, which live, like, you know, in our Alpine regions, they need the moths to get there <laughs> so that they can <laughs> eat them. Very important to consider. Um So speaking of light, we're going to be talking about colour. And so stay tuned. We're going to come back to different things about colour. But before that, just a reminder to follow us on Twitter at Radio Silence, and you can listen to us on all the places that you can listen to podcasts on, as well as obviously Radio (laughs) Fodder. So here's a song now for you, Colours of the Wind by Judy Kuhn.
1: Welcome back to Radio Silence here on Radio Fodder, where we are bringing science into focus. And today we're talking about colour. So, Carla is going to start us off.
2: Thanks, Kai. Um, So, today I wanted to talk about colour in the animal kingdom. And I guess it's hard to think of a world without colour. So much of the information that we take on about our surroundings is due to our ability to see a broad range of colours. So, some colours warn us of certain things, like Red stop signs tell us to stop. Um, Conversely, green means go. And color actually proves to be very important for animals or for communication, breeding, and then even more holistically survival. So, unfortunately, us humans, we can't really change colour. We can change our outfits and wear blue ones like us. Um, we can wear camo print if we want to blend into our surroundings a little bit more. Um, but the most we can do in terms of like changing our skin is we can go outside to get a tan or sometimes we can turn red when we're in the presence of someone we find a little bit cute. Um, Face paint. Face paint, true, but that I feel like that comes into the whole outfit idea. <laughs> um, but what we do know is that some animals can change colour, and particularly the colour of their skin. So chameleons get all of the hype because they can do this before our very eyes. Um, they change colour by changing the arrangement of certain skin cells, which are called iridophores, and they have nanocrystals in them that actually f- um, reflect different light of different wavelengths. and it depends on their orientation so that's how they do that another animal that i find really cool is the octopus and so amongst many other things octopuses also change color and they do so by um, having these special cells called chromatophores in their skin which contain sacs of pigment which range in color And when the muscles around these cells tighten, the pigment sacs expand and stretch. So it's easier to see more pigment on the skin. So when those muscles relax, the pigment sacs are no longer stretched and so the skin becomes less pigmented. And so this is how they control their color. Octopuses, though, are extra cool because being cephalopods, they can also change their shape and the texture of their skin. So it just means that they can also look like rocks or even other animals, which I think is really cool. Um, But what we've actually done is we've also observed the phenomenon of changing of body colour in bearded dragons here in Australia. So bearded dragons do this for courtship or to regulate their body temperature. But they've even been um, studied to be able to match like their background color depending on um, where they originate from. So what I found interesting was that the hue of their body color was different depending on um, their like place of origin. So bearded dragons from Miljura usually have more of a yellow hue compared to bearded dragons from Alice Springs, sorry, which have more of an orange color to them. And it makes sense in terms of environmental adaptations because Alice Springs is more of an orange landscape. So not only can they change their color to suit their environment, they've also adapted like their basal body color to suit it. But I guess there are also some color changing animals that don't always come to mind. And one of those, are birds. So some birds actually do change color and I've been going through a bit of a bird phase recently. And, (laughs) um, and by bird phase, I mean, I was suggested a random post on Instagram of this like dedicated bird account and I clicked into it and looked at a few photos and now all my suggested images are of (laughs) birds. Um, but I'm not complaining. And I feel like after saying that I'm going to get even more bird photos. Um, (laughs) So I will stress though, that not all birds change color. In fact, very few do. Um, Most birds only replace their feathers once per year and some do twice per year. So these are those color changing birds that I'm talking about. So they change um, from dull feathers to more brighter ones. And you might be thinking, why don't they just stay pretty and colorful all year round? um but it comes down to the fact that it has been found that being really vibrant and colorful can lead to a greater risk of predation because obviously it's a, a lot easier to get spotted when you're really highly colorful compared to more dull colors and so it is also really important to be colorful in order to find a mate so this is why they change their feathers for the breeding season And then they often revert back when the season is over, so they can be less detectable by predators. And so for birds that do do this, it's actually really important that they do have a very defined breeding season for it to actually work. Um, But I just find it really interesting um, the way that colour has been adapted for a very specific function in um, Mm. bird species. So sticking on the topic of birds, there's also another interesting way that birds use color to avoid predation. And this is with a behavior called a flash display. And now the name might give away what these birds do to get away. um, But essentially Aussie birds in particular, they display some bright colors when they're fleeing a dangerous situation. And previously it was thought that this was a mechanism used to like startle their predators. Um, so they weren't going to get attacked Um, but they actually um, think that it's more to confuse them instead so these birds display their bright colors when in danger so a predator thinks that the fleeing animal is a different one to the one that they're trying to target um, because they appear one color which is like really vibrant and then they flee and become a different color um, which is typically more muted so it's just like a confusion tactic and I think it's quite flashy of an adaptation <laughs> <laughs> um, because it just really oh, proves bitch. how important colour is. Yeah. <laughs> I had to throw that in there. Um, but, yeah, it's, it just shows how important colour is for animals trying to get out of really sticky situations.
0: <laughs> I also just picture, like, you know, in Harry Potter number five when, like, um, Dumbledore flees the office and it's like Fox's flash. That's what mm-hmm. I thought you were going like, to yeah, say. The flash yeah. Just, like,
2: <laughs> I wish. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah, on the same topic of things that fly, butterflies also have really pretty colors and patterns on their wings. And it was actually previously thought that the climate or the temperature of an environment in in which the butterflies live, um, contributed to their color. That's going by the old trusty rule of darker colors cause surfaces to heat faster than lighter colors. Um, but was, what was actually found is that it wasn't the temperature of the environment that determined butterfly colour or patterning um, because what they found was Australian butterfly wings can actually reflect near-infrared wavelengths of light, which cool them down. So instead, their wings look the way they do more so for camouflage or for attracting mates, much like birds. And at this point, it would just be plain wrong for me not to mention genetics. I somehow find a way (laughs) to get it in every week. Um, So there's actually a high level of variability in butterfly wing colours and patterns. Um, But wing colour variation is actually controlled by only very few genes and those that are expressed in the wings. So the genes for butterfly wing pattern, um, they're really highly conserved at an amino acid level, um, but the non-coding regions alongside these control gene expression during development. So this is one of the really special features that allows for high levels of diversity and allow these changes of color and pattern to happen, sorry, quite easily and quickly over time. And so that's why we see so many beautiful colors and patterns um, in butterfly wings. So yeah, I've talked a little bit about how animals use color to survive, but how do they actually see it? So for us humans, we're stuck with three types of cones. We've got blue, green, and red. And these allow us to see the myriad of colors that we know and love. And many mammals are just like us. They have the same cones and are likely to perceive color in the same way as us. But some animals, like those in our oceans, like mantis shrimp, have a lot more cones. So they have 12. And so they're able to see a larger range of colors, um, ones that we couldn't even imagine. And some animals can see colours that are entirely invisible to the human eye. So bees, for example, they can see ultraviolet colours. And some can't um, see particular colours as well, like dolphins can't see the colour blue, which is a shame because I think all three of us really like the colour blue. (laughs) Um, And additionally, it was even previously thought that dogs couldn't see colour very well, if at all. And there are now studies that have proven that they can actually differentiate between different shades of the same colors, which suggests that their color vision is actually quite sound. Um, But what is challenging is understanding how animals use their color vision and the way that they perceive color for survival, because obviously we can't exactly see what they're seeing and it makes it harder for us to interpret. Um, But I find it really fascinating and I can't wait to hear what else we find out about our cool and colorful animal friends.
1: Yeah, well, thanks for that, Carla. Uh, we're going to be talking more about colour after our next song, which is Yellow by Coldplay.
2: That was Yellow by Coldplay and you're listening to Radio Silence and today we're talking about colour.
0: Catriona, take it away. Well, how does the colour make you feel? We are all wearing well, we're not all wearing blue unless that's a blue top guy. I don't know, but
1: <laughs> it's kind of blue. Yeah, like- <laughs> we all
0: like wearing blue, Um, but I don't know if like we like it because blue makes us feel a certain way. I don't know if you sort of both feel like you um, respond differently to different colors, but there's there's this whole field of color psychology about like, you know, how colors make us feel and people think about that when it comes to marketing and advertising and things mm. like that as well. But there are there are all these claims that red makes the heart beat faster and cool colours like purple or blue and green, they're peaceful and they relieve tension. So there are plenty of claims for the effects of different colours on the human mind and, and our bodies, but is there any scientific evidence and data to support these claims? So it comes down to how we see colour and how we interact with colour. So scientists have understood how we actually see colour for the best part of a century, um, but it's only in the past couple of decades that we've discovered and begun to understand sort of this separate non-visual pathway. So, like the non-visual effects of color. Um, so, color mentioned that that we have you know cones and they help us see color. Um, so they're three of the different types of um, you know, sort of light-sensitive cells that we've got at the back of our eyes in our retinas. We've also got rods which help us see in the dark, but we've actually also got this other set. So if you think about the ear, for example, the ear gives us both a sense of hearing, which is sort of obvious, but it also gives us a sense of balance, like our balance comes from our ear. And we now know that the eye performs two functions as well. So um, those light sensitive cells that, that are cones and rods, they're sending electrochemical signals primarily to the visual cortex in the brain, where you get visual images formed in your brain. But now we know that there's another group of cells at the back of the retina that respond to light by sending signals mainly to a central brain region called the hypothalamus, and that plays no role in forming visual images. So mm. these cells are detecting light and sending image uh, sending like cues and signals to your brain and specifically your hypothalamus, but it's got nothing to do with sight. Mm. So the hypothalamus, for context, is a key part of the brain that's responsible for the secretion or the production of, of a number of hormones, which control lots of different aspects of our body's self-regulation. So, including how we regulate our temperature, our sleep, hunger, and circadian rhythm. So, um, you know, feeling day and night, which I kind of mentioned in our mm-hmm. story, my new story. Um, but exposure to light in the morning, specifically blue and green light, Um, prompts the release of the hormone cortisol, which stimulates us and and wakes us up. And it also inhibits the release of melatonin, that that drowsy hormone or the one that makes you sleep. So in the late evening, as the amount of blue light in the sunlight is is reduced because the sun's setting and then once the sun is set, you lose that blue light, you haven't got those signals being sent to the hypothalamus and um, so melatonin is being released into the bloodstream, and we come drowsy. Um, So, for example, um, this non-image-forming visual pathway to the hypothalamus is believed to be involved in seasonal affective disorder. I don't know if you've heard of SAD,
1: Mm -hmm. S-A-D. Yeah.
0: Um, So that's a mood disorder that affects some people during darker winter months because you're not getting as much sunlight and you start to feel a little bit more down. So the going theory is that the lack of sunlight means that the hypothalamus doesn't work properly or, you know, it's not getting those signals. Um, so it's not getting that as much blue and green light. And so that's not inhibiting the production of melatonin. And so mm. you're, you're producing more and that makes you more sleepy. And on the flip side, you produce less serotonin, the happy hormone. So, so a lack of serotonin is sort of links to feelings of depression. Um, And now SAD or or seasonal affective disorder can be successfully treated by exposing people to light in the morning. So that blue or green light seems to really be making a difference. And similarly, there's some data that, that show that exposure to bright short wavelength light a couple of hours prior to normal bedtime can increase your alertness and therefore reduce your sleep quality um, and then <laughs> there's some concern that our excessive use of like phones and tablets especially late in the evening can affect your sleep because they, they emit a lot of blue and green light um, so they're at those wavelengths that are inhibiting that, that release of melatonin so you're not getting drowsy so in fact I don't know about you but I actually have a blue light f- filter on my computer and my phone and things like that so yeah block out yeah. that blue light if you can.
1: And it makes a difference in my anecdotal experience. Like definitely does. So anyway, carry on.
0: <laughs> yeah. Sometimes I forget to turn it off when I like want all nighters though. Maybe that's <laughs> 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 maybe I should leave it on.
1: Yeah, or, definitely or, turn it on for the all nighter. Or like
0: leave the filter off. Is that what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah don't have the as much don't blue light
1: as possible. The
0: blue light, yeah. <laughs> if you're pulling an all nighter get some blue light into you (laughs) but probably don't pull pull too many
1: necessarily
0: (laughs) (laughs) um so that's that's one effect of of blue and green light but but what are some of the other claims well there there were two independent research groups that found that red light does seem to increase your heart rate um and blue light lowers it but that was sort of only slightly uh, still an interesting effect and also in 2009 um, blue lights were installed on train station platforms along the Yamanote line in Tokyo. So that's like essentially the busiest line. It's kind of like our city circle but much, much bigger and many more people use it. Um, but they, they installed blue lights to reduce the incidence of suicide. And suicides did fall by 74% at stations where the blue lights were installed, which is, which is great. And they've also yeah. since been installed in um at at gatwick airport train platforms and also a random train crossing in scotland um so wow yeah i mean the these were steps just sort of taken on the base of the claim that blue light can make people a little bit less impulsive and and more calm Um, and one study in 2017 sort of backed up this idea and it showed that people who experience psychological stress returned more quickly to sort of that state of relaxation when they lay in a room that, that just bathed them in blue light. <laughs> um, and it also accelerated the, the relaxation process, which they measured based on heart rate and brain activity after um, acute psychosocial stress. So things like arguing with a friend, because, you know, that's not fun, or, or when someone pressures you to finish something really quickly. <laughs>
1: Like an all nighter. Yeah. <laughs>
0: yeah. Um, but I guess the big question is like correlation or causation. Yeah, definitely. Um, so there's still little scientific evidence yet to support these claims yet, but researchers are working on it. Um, it is hard to say though, especially like for the case of the trains. Um, platform screen barriers have helped too, like because they pre- actually prevent people from,
1: oh you know, yeah, well, and
0: and yeah, and can you really see the blue lights? noticeably during the day, like, I guess there's sort of, you know, questions raised, um, which kind of, yeah. it's just things to think about. It just goes to show you that, like, you know, you always have to look at science critically. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, definitely.
0: Um, and I just want to finish on uh, COVID-19 or the coronavirus. And I'm not going to talk about the virus, um, but more the colour that we use to represent it. So you can probably mm. picture that image of it. Like, it's it's that ball with all the spikes, Um, And in their early depictions of the virus, designers and illustrators and communicators, they were all making some very highly creative and evocative decisions around the colour patterns that they used. Um, Now, viruses don't actually have a colour because they're so small and I'm not going to to get into that can of worms, but essentially viruses exist sort of like in a a realm where colour has no meaning, like viruses, molecules, things that are super tiny just have no colour. Um, and in the way that that people were talking about COVID-19 and this virus, as COVID 2 um, there was little consensus around the colour, and you probably saw images of the virus come in red, orange, blue, yellows, and green. Um, there's that uh, famous one that's, like, white with red spikes or, like, red with blue spikes, and sort of, so many colour combinations. Um, and while all of these images look, you know, quite aesthetically striking – the arbitrary nature of their colouring and the lack of consensus around the appearance of the virus actually confirmed people's fears and increased anxiety. And the WHO was sort of like concerned about this. Um,
1: oh wow! So it was like the the variation caused anxiety, not any specific colour.
0: Yeah. So it wasn't the colour itself. It was more just like all the different colours were just confusing people. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And they're I would like, have but thought what is they're it? Like-
1: it's it's I seem to associate it with red like Same. when you said imagine it I thought red, and I thought yeah. oh that was gonna like make people their heart beat faster and feel anxious <laughs> or something but no that's
0: well maybe it does a very,
1: um, yeah.
0: linking linking it back to what I said before <laughs> <laughs> um, but essentially one one solution would be to embrace the colorlessness of um, mm. some microscopic world and and so you know if we just accept the grayness and be like this is a virus, it's grey, like it would just maybe make things easier if we just sort of, you know, said that always. But, you know, obviously people do like to be artistic in their expression. Yeah. So, um, yeah, it was just interesting that that actually played a role in sort of the, com- the confusion, particularly at wow. the beginning of the pandemic. Um, so it's really clear that, that light and, and colour specifically can affect us in ways that just go far beyond our regular vision and our colour vision, like they impact us emotionally as well, and physically, which is really cool.
2: Yeah. Well, thanks, Catriona. We're now going to play a song about a colour that Catriona has spoken about quite a bit, and it's (laughs) Blue by Flume.
0: Hello and welcome back. You're listening to Radio Silence, where we're bringing science into focus on Radio Fodder. That was Blue by Flume, and we had that because we're talking about all about colour. So, Kai, what are you going to tell us about?
1: Well, I'm going to talk about how you create color. So, I'll ask you guys, how how do you create color? Like, what would you do if you wanted to change a color of something?
0: Depends what it is. Yeah. <laughs> Anything. Put a filter on it, I don't know.
1: A filter, yeah. You might want to, like, dye it or something. Paint it, uh, yeah. uh, My paint mind it, went yeah. to, like,
2: going to find a rock that had a pigment in it and crushing it up and mixing it. <laughs>
0: Oh, wow.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's that's totally valid. But all of these methods use pigments of some sort. So, a dye or something that absorbs certain colours of light and reflects the others. And it's the ones that get reflected that are the ones we see and it's what makes that object look that colour. And this is true for most of the colours that we see around us. So, you know, in sort of the natural or like... Biological world, things like hair and skin colour, they're all pigments. Dyed clothes, pigments, um, crushed up rocks, pigments. Mm. So, pigments are the main way that we create and see colour. But there is another way. And it's actually responsible for some of the most vibrant and beautiful colours we see in the animal kingdom. And Carla touched on this very briefly in her section, but I'm going to talk about it a lot more now. And it's called structural color. And this is color that doesn't use pigments. Instead, it uses tiny nanoscale structures that create the color. So the way this works is that these structures are really, really small and they're sort of comparable to or smaller than the wavelength of light. And what this means is they can have some really interesting interactions with light and produce certain colours. So, one example that I seem to think like everyone would have like experienced, but maybe these days younger people won't have, but it's the colours you see on the underside of a CD. Yeah. So, that that like rainbow colour that you can, you know, get different colours if you tilt the CD in the light. And this is created by the tiny holes on the underside of the CD and they diffract light in certain ways, creating different colors. And and yes, yeah, if this is caused entirely by the structure. There's no pigments in the CD that create rainbow colors. So it's really, really fascinating that this can happen in lots of different ways. Now, speaking of the effect where color changes with angle, is this is the effect called iridescence, and yeah, it's in a lot of different animals. So, Carla, you mentioned a bunch of different colored or colorful animals before, and many of them have structural color. So, you mentioned chameleons and their nanocrystals, uh, but also butterflies, hummingbirds, peacock feathers, beetles, so many different animals actually utilize structural color for various different reasons. And if you think about all these different animals, they all have really bright or striking colours. You know, peacock feathers are really colourful and, you know, beetles can be really shiny. And all of these are really only achievable by using structural colour. And another one that I think is really interesting in animals or specifically humans is people with blue eyes. So, there's no blue pigment in blue eyes, which I find really fascinating. Um, the pigment, like, you know, if you have pigment in your eyes, it makes them darker colors other than blue. So, the blue is entirely structural and it comes from the structure of the iris. And I think that's really wow. fascinating that, yeah, in, if you've got blue eyes, there's just the structure of your iris reflects blue light. And it's it's really fascinating. And this is really interesting, speaking of the colour blue in nature, because it's not actually a pigment that we see in nature very often. So, you can sort of see evidence of this, um, you know, hundreds of years ago, blue pigment was really expensive. And, you know, the name royal blue actually attests to this, you know, it was the colour of royalty um, because it was so expensive. And I think there was like a specific sea snail that grew in the Mediterranean Sea that was like the source of blue dye. And, you know, people had to harvest hundreds of these sea snails just to get enough dye to actually do anything with. And, like, that's bizarre, but shows why blue dye was so expensive um, because it was just rare and hard to get. So, this is why the first synthetic blue pigments were a really big deal, So, the first synthesis of, it's called indigo blue dye, which is the colour used in jeans pretty often. Um, That was like a big breakthrough in chemistry when they could first make that dye synthetically because it meant it could be done much, much cheaper. Thanks, science. We
0: can now all wear blue, all three of us. (laughs)
1: Um, Yeah. So, that's a really big deal. But it turns out that nature is really good at structural colour. And it's only now that scientists are trying to mimic this. So, we've been mimicking pigments for a while with synthetic indigo, but really only now is structural colour starting to become this thing that people are trying to create. And there are, like, different ways that scientists are looking at creating structural colour. So, nanofabrication is a rapidly developing field... And essentially what it involves is carving out structures on the nanoscale and this can be done, like can do a whole lot of different cool things like making computer chips on tiny scales. And now we want to use it for creating structural color. So the way that they often do this is by using an electron beam to Basically, fire a beam of electrons and then draw the structure that you want. So, you're using a bombardment of electrons to like scrape away material. And this is really cool, but it's also kind of slow. So, to think about it, you're like got a pencil that's, you know, making a dot a few nanometers wide and you've got to draw that around. It's going to take you a really long time to actually create a whole surface. So what they're doing is looking at ways of actually speeding up this process or scaling it up and making things like making a mold rather than carving it out directly. You carve out a mold and then you'd use this to like stamp the colors. Mm -hmm. And this can be could potentially be uh, actually advantageous for creating colors because if you think about it, when you're using, say, a printer and it's got different color cartridges you have to put in it, you've got different colored, like, Dies, So you need to have multiple processes to put each one of those colors down on whatever you're printing on. But if you were to create a structural color stamp, you could then print out whatever color you wanted using that stamp or some combination of colors or some cool effect like iridescence using this stamp. So I think it's really cool. It's obviously still in the sort of early um, development stages, but there are some really interesting applications that are already starting to emerge or could emerge in the not too distant future. And one of them is integrating patches of structural colour into things like banknotes or other documents that you don't want forged. So, because structural colour is something that it's kind of hard to fake unless you've got the technology, then there'd be absolutely no way of forging these documents if you didn't have the ability to make structural color. So I think that's really cool. Um, another one is looking at incorporating this technology into displays. So like things like screens. And this is could be really useful because structural color, if you were to create a screen and you could like turn on the color on and off, and there's looking at ways of doing this already, you don't actually need a light source in your display. If it's illuminated by like just ambient light, you don't need to generate any light and that means it's going to take a lot less energy to display whatever you want. So, structural color could be really useful in this field of creating these low energy displays and there's already been a few prototypes of this. Like they don't, you know, they're not at consumer level just yet but they've been able to show that, yeah, this uses a lot less energy and can create really nice colors using structural color. And it's not just about going low energy. You can also make it much, much smaller. So because structural color is actually done on the nanoscale, it creates or takes up less space than traditional pigments would. So say you've got a display, you've got some sort of light like emitter in the back, and then you've got a thick filter that has to filter out certain light wavelengths so that you can have different colors coming from your display. And just because of the fact that this has to be some sort of pigment and it has to be sort of thick enough that the light traveling through it will get absorbed by the time it comes out the other side, you need necessarily to make this kind of chunky. So they're looking at ways of doing this with structural color that's going to be much thinner and smaller And it means you don't have to worry about the size it takes up as much. And this means you can make it like much higher resolution or you could just make it smaller and uh, also remove some other problems like when if you have these two separate things like a filter and a display underneath, you have to like align them. And this gets really hard on small scales. So it's just making things so much easier and it's going to be really cool if all of these techniques that are currently being developed make it into technology in the future Mm -hmm. so yeah i think it's just generally really cool the way it works but it's also fascinating that a lot of this is inspired by nature and these things are around us all the time and we just need to know where to look Mm, that's really cool um
0: I'm trying to think like, you know, smartwatches are already pretty small, but like could we go smaller?
1: (laughs) Yeah, we could go smaller or like higher resolution in that same size or just even lower energy because think about it, if your smartwatch used less energy or you just use light from Mm. the light around you, then the battery wouldn't have to be charged every day.
0: Yeah, using less energy is good. Mm. Mm. That's really cool. Um, Thanks for that story, Kai. If you like this story, you can check out all of our previous podcasts and episodes um, on SoundCloud and anywhere else that you can listen to podcasts. And um, you can also follow us on Twitter at Radio Silence. So just to round off, because we've been talking about colour, we're going to end on a final colour, red, by Taylor Swift.